God is gracious, amen? amen? 2022, he was very good to us, wasn't he? And we're excited for a big 2023, one of those. Whatever next 12 months we call it, it's going to be a total mess and it's going to be absolutely awesome, amen? I'm just going to read some of those uh, numbers again because uh, the, the, they skimmed over our, over our heads. It's over about 37,000 37, hours of volunteer labor ministry. So that, that includes in the work of the church, that does not include anybody on staff or getting paid. That's 6,000 hours of volunteer hours going into fellowship groups. A thousand plus going into volunteer children's ministry, six and a half thousand hours throughout the year in our uh, hospital. Uh, sorry, into our worship ministry, who uh, serve us by leading us in songs on Sundays. Three thousand hours in the youth and young adults. Two and a half thousand hours from the cooks in our hospitality. Nine thousand hours in our tech and camera team ministry that get the gospel and our preaching out onto the internet. Another four thousand hours from those who serve in our social media team and well over a one, I just don't believe the 1.5 thousand hours that was submitted for the deacon ministry. That is a blatant lie. They do at least 10 times that. But if we, if you, if as an individual, you were to try and replicate all of the volunteer hours that were served to the Lord Jesus Christ in this church alone, on the basis of those numbers alone, you would be working without sleeping, without resting, without breaking for four years and one month and you still wouldn't get it all done. That's how much time is being put in around here to to serve you, to serve God, to get the gospel out, and to make this a church that is efficient and productive on ministry. Is that good news or what? Praise God. Can you give it a round of applause for all of the volunteers? Which is also, of course, an act of worship to God. And we don't want to separate the two. We don't want to say that, you know, there's, there's God over here and then there's our useless works over here or that there's, there's God's grace and then there's our effort. God marries the two in the, in the gospel, not to our salvation, but God graciously saves the wretched, defiled, impure sinners that we are. And then by his grace and mercy, he puts us to work. Didn't that psalm that Vic read for us this morning, Psalm 89, didn't that finish out with him saying, it is his pleasure to make us strong? He loves to put us to work for the glory of his son, Jesus Christ. And we just, we praise God. Us elders, the deacons as well, we love that God is using us in such a way and using you in such a way to build, build a glorious house for his name's sake. Amen? Go to Psalm 110. <clears throat> Today is, and if you haven't been here before, you didn't get the announcements over the last couple of weeks, uh, this is what we call our Vision Sunday. Basically, we're, we're reminding ourselves, we're recalling, we're recharging, we're reminiscing, we're, we're, we're refocusing on what does the Bible say is the job of the local church. It may be a, a real surprise to you to hear this, especially being here and looking around at the pretty average looking group of people we got here, but the local church and the multiple local churches, the millions of local churches over the globe, that is where God has acted. The, the God of the universe, the infinite God, he has invested his power and his purposes to, 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 to fulfill his promises and to fulfill his, his goals, he's doing it all through the local church. It is one of the most important questions in the world, one of, to ask the question, what should the local church be doing? What are Christians supposed to gather and then get busy doing? That is an all-important question. And as we look to the Bible, one of the ways that we see the, the New Testament writers, okay, for the, for the newbies, that's the apostles, the disciples of Jesus that were then entrusted with teaching the church 
through one generation of their teaching ministry, teaching them what, how we are to obey Jesus, what we are to believe about Jesus, and then what we are supposed to do for Jesus. They taught that, and the Holy Spirit codified it through their letters in what is now called the New Testament, a God-written, through-man document, the New Testament. These, these 27 books in, our, in the, the second half of our Bible, that's now our authority. So when we come to the question and say, how did these writers, ordained by God, chosen by God, filled by the Spirit of God, how did they see, what did they teach, what was their vision for the task and the mission of the local church, I think that's where we need to start. What, and, and therefore, it's a, it's a helpful question to ask, what was one of the main central focus points of theology for how the New Testament writers saw the Old Testament promises of God being fulfilled into the New Testament? Or another way of asking that question could be this. Is there one verse in the Old Testament that the guys who are preaching and writing the New Testament, is there, is there one verse that they all agreed was their favorite verse? Okay? They have life verses. They had Jeremiah 29, 11 on their coffee cups or you know, plans to prosper me and whatnot that your Auntie Carol gave you for Christmas one time. They've got the Kurong pens with, with Deuteronomy 6 on it. They all had favorite Bible verses, right? We do that as well. You get your verse. It's always terribly out of context and onto the merchandise it goes. What was the, what was the apostles' favorite Bible verse? And what stands head and shoulders above the rest as the Old Testament verse that is quoted more than any other in the New Testament is what we're about to read first. Psalm 110, verse 1. And on first reading, it will seem a, a, a slight, slightly bit obscure, strange, uh, uh, not quite connected to the gospel we might feel. But we're going to see today what the mission of the local church is how we ought to, as, as Hope Reformed Baptist Church, how we can bind together to see this purpose fulfilled in part through us by God's grace. And we're going to see it through the lens of Psalm 110. So go, if you haven't already, like I haven't, Psalm 110 verse 1, and we will be reading the whole thing. Psalm 110 is the word of God, and it reads like this. A Psalm of David the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make all of your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. May God bless the reading of his own word in our midst this morning. Amen. This psalm is a Davidic, prophetic, messianic psalm. Those three things are very important. Davidic, meaning it was written by David, the great king of Israel, the great king that unified the kingdoms after the division that was coming through Saul, the second king of Israel. He was the most glorious king of Israel. Solomon came and extended the borders, but he also split the thing through his idolatry and his sin. David is, is, the, is the archetypal king of the Old Testament. And what is now interesting is that it's a Davidic psalm written by him, but it's a Davidic psalm written that is also messianic, meaning it's written about a messiah. 
So it's the greatest king of the Old Testament writing about a greater yet king that is to come, a a Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ, or who we call Jesus, God the Son come into flesh. He was writing about the kingdom that would be Jesus. He was writing about the, the people that would belong to Jesus, the promises that would be given to Jesus by the Father. And then lastly, it is also a prophetic psalm. That is, at the time that David the king wrote it, about Christ the king to come, he was looking entirely future. For us, it is somewhat past, somewhat current, somewhat future. It is prophetic for David in the sense that he looked forward, but it was starting to be fulfilled, and it exploded in its inauguration at Jesus' resurrection and ascension. But don't don't take that to mean that Psalm 110 is entirely fulfilled. It's still being fulfilled, and there is a greater sense in which it will finish being fulfilled into the future as God wraps up his glorious purposes through the church in the world. So it is a Davidic, messianic, prophetic psalm. But this verse 1 becomes key and core and vital and central to how the New Testament views the mission of the church. Let me read it again. The Lord says to my Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D there is an English version of the, 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 the Hebrew's name for God, the very personal covenantal name, Yahweh. Yahweh says to my Lord, that Lord meaning Adonai, my ruler, my king, my master. So he is the greatest king of the Old Testament, and he's got a God. No one disputes that. And he's got a master. That's quite, that's quite uh, 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 interesting, that the great king would have a, a God and a master. And here is God speaking to David's master that he is prophetically seeing as the Messiah. The Lord Yahweh said to my Lord, says David, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That is that what David is foreseeing is that there is a day when the father will, will inaugurate a kingdom of his son. He will start doing things in the world that is not just through the sons of Abraham. It's not just in a geopolitical nation, but it starts to be a kingdom that is worldwide and that is ruling not from a seat somewhere on earth, not from a seat that is somewhere even in Jerusalem, not from a seat that is somewhere from Washington. This is from a seat that is in heaven at the right hand of the eternal God. David was foreseeing a day when God would give to David's Lord a kingdom that will have no end, that will have no borders between people, and that will have no weakness embedded in it, for it will be strong. It will go on conquering end to conquer. This is the spiritual kingdom of God, sometimes called the kingdom of heaven. This is what Jesus came to earth to bring us into and to bring down to earth. You may ask the question, why, as we're looking at the vision of the church, as we're looking at the the task of the local church and the the kingdom of God, why are we going back to Psalm 110, verse 1 and following? It is because we can make no sense of our theology or understanding or efforts and and, and deeds of the kingdom. We can't make any, any understanding in terms of our theology of the church or the kingdom unless we understand who the head of the church is and who our king over the kingdom is. And therefore, it is all important to go back to Psalm 110, verse 1, and realize that God had promised to David. But in his resurrection and ascension, God has promised to his son Jesus that he will have all authority in heaven and on earth. Do you see that that's embedded in that line there in Psalm 110, verse 1? Sit at my right hand 
What God is saying is, I have the rule above all rule. Come and join me, and now the rule is yours. I I impart this rulership, this authority, this power and dominion unto you, my son. Come and rule. And, And how long will he rule? What's the purpose of his ruling? It's until every enemy of Jesus Christ is put down to the foot of Jesus and becomes a servant, a footstool. The imagery is very politically incorrect, and I'm, I'm sorry if you have a whitewashed picture of Jesus where he was just the cuddly children's ministry worker all of his life. This picture is the reigning Jesus, and it's where his enemies, like in the, the ancient world, they would be brought having lost their battle, the kings left alive, the generals left alive, dragged in chains to the foot of the throne of the victorious king, and there he places his foot on their throat, either to kill or to make them yield. And this is the picture of the spiritual kingdom of Jesus, that Jesus will rule so that the Father brings his spiritual enemies to bow at his feet, either through judgment, being wiped out, condemned for their own sin and sent to hell, or, friends, or They will be brought as converts who give themselves to Jesus in faith and begin to serve him. That this is a central idea for the New Testament gospel and church and kingdom is proven absolutely by the fact that Jesus references this exact theme and this very psalm when he gives to the church that all-important and all-encompassing great Commission. Can you go with me to Matthew 28, towards the very end of Matthew's gospel? That's the very first book of the New Testament. <clears throat> How do we know that this idea of Jesus receiving all lordship, all authority is so central to how we need to think about our king before we try and serve him? How we need to think about our head before we, the church, try and serve him, is proven by the fact that Jesus does precisely that. Look at verse 18 of Matthew chapter 28, this section called the Great Commission. And Jesus came and said to them, Psalm 110 verse 1 has been fulfilled. That's what he's saying. says, he came and he said to them, the Lord has said to me, come up, sit down and rule and reign until your enemies are Put down. He says, all authority, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, has been, past tense, has been given to me. I am the Lord that David prophetically spoke about. Verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Do you see that as soon as Jesus thinks, how am I going to encourage them as I'm about to give them the all-encompassing commandment for the life of the church until I come back? Until the end of the age, what am I going to say to them? I'm going to tell them, teach, preach, baptize, disciple. And how am I going to prologue it? How am I going to start it out? What's going to be my introductory remark? Psalm 110. Verse 1 has been fulfilled. What of it? I have all authority on heaven and earth. I've been called up to the throne next to my father. That's what Jesus is saying. And we need to see the dynamic that this is so important. The, the, The authority that Jesus gives to this commission is an insight for us for how important he thinks it is. If he had simply said, 
There's an obscure reference in some Old Testament text that mentions something, yada, 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 and then tells us, go on, make some disciples. We would think, well, well, the, the authority was little, the urgency is little. But that, he says, all authority on heaven and earth is given to me, therefore, go. He is connecting this task of discipleship making, which so many of us and so many churches simply take so peripheral. And tangential, it's, it's like one thing that we might do among the soup kitchens and the worship uh, 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 concerts. No, no, no. Making disciples is that most important thing that must be done because it is annexed by the most important reminder ever. The man commanding this is the Christ, the Lord, the Messiah, sitting on the right hand of God. So his authority gives us a sense of the urgency. His, his authority gives us a sense of the importance of this task. And his authority also gives us a sense of assurance and confidence in our undertaking of this task. That we can remind ourselves at every point, as we are striving and laboring to plant churches and to send preachers and to raise up people, and to, in all that we do, we can remind ourselves, though we grow weary, the Lord said to do this, and he promised to be with us, with us as we do this, we can take heart. And so... The New Testament writers take up this verse and they either quote it or refer to it in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It comes up in, in a sense in Romans. It's quoted explicitly in 1 Corinthians. It's then brought up in Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. It comes out in 1 Peter. It comes out in the book of Hebrews, exegeted clearly. It's all throughout the preaching of the apostle Peter and the apostle Paul. And it, it, it is bleeding and dripping from the pages of Revelation. This is a central idea of how we think about Jesus and how we think about Jesus informs how we think about his kingdom and his church. It is altogether important to understand that Jesus is now enthroned with all authority given to him. But look at verse 3. <coughs> verse 3, this is where it really comes to us. Psalm 110 verse 3 says this, your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. See this as the Father's promise to the Son. Here it says, your people will come to you freely, voluntarily, and willingness in holiness to serve you on the day of your power. So what does it mean, the day of his power? It is a, it is a language, a, 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 a literary technique to say the day of his reigning, the day of his executing, the, the, the commands given to him by his Father. In other words, every day since the resurrection of Jesus is the day of his power. Every day since he sent the Holy Spirit to his people in Pentecost is the day of his power. Every day until Jesus comes back in glory to consummate all the world into the eternal state, every day until that day is the day and days of his power, the days of his reign. That's out of the way. What about his people? What does it mean that it says your people, the Father's telling Jesus, your people will offer themselves to you freely? What is, what is that and who is that? Your, your people, in one sense, is the whole vast company of, hear me, billions, uncountable numbers of souls that were chosen by God on purpose 
and with intentionality, specifically, individually, and personally. He picked who would be saved according to the counsel of his own will, according to his own overflowing, gracious, eternal love. He chose who would be saved. And here is the father promising the son, saying, you have died, you have risen. I have enthroned you. I promise to you that every single one of your people that I've chosen for you, or another picture that's given to us is kind of a a bride and a groom. It's as if the father is saying to the son, you've come, here's your wedding day. You've done everything you needed to do. Now I promise you, I will get your bride down the aisle. I'll bring them. I'll bring every single one of them to you. They will have faith in you. They will trust in you. They will be saved by you. They will join your kingdom. That is an all-important sense. And that is a primary sense that we must ask. Let's, uh, let, let's consider nothing about, hey, pastor, hey, hey, church, how can I serve? How can I change my life? How can I do certain things to please Jesus? Let's ask none of those questions before we've asked the first question. Have you come to Jesus by faith and, and sent into the grave your whole old life? given to him your sins, acknowledge that you have no righteousness, trusted in his salvation and been saved and born again. That is the most important thing. Jesus said, there is no entering this kingdom unless you have been born again. The kingdom of Jesus is not entered through bloodline. It's not entered through baptism. It's not entered through church membership. It's not entered through tithing. It's not entered through gifts. It's not entered through your skills. It's not entered through your knowledge. You enter this kingdom of Jesus that he is now ruling over only by faith in him, having been born again by the Holy Spirit. However, there's a second sense that Psalm 110 is talking about when the father promises the son, your people will come to you. Your people will offer themselves. Your people will give themselves to you freely in holy garments. And that sense is the sense in which all those who have come to Jesus by faith, I pray that's you. I pray that that is you, that you have come and given your sins to Jesus and been saved. What the Father is also promising the Son is all of us who come to him will also then with our new hearts, with our new faith, get active in the work of the kingdom to serve the King of kings and the Lord of lords with our life. And that we love to do it that we will offer ourselves freely to Jesus to serve him in our lives, with our gifts, with our skills, in our family, in the local church, we will then offer ourselves to him freely. Do you see that your sanctification and your growth in holiness and your responsible allocating of time and resources so that you can leverage all that God has given you to maximize your productivity in the mission of the local church, or to summarize all of that, your service in the mission of the local church to win souls, that is so important to the Father and to the Son that it was sealed with a promise and an oath in Jesus' inauguration. As far as Jesus uh, understands it, this is a part of the gospel for him. He said in Isaiah 53, I'll go and I'll die so that I can intercede for them and they'll offer themselves to me. They'll obey me. Psalm 110 verse 3, he came to be the king over a kingdom so that he can have people that serve him and work for him. I simply have to ask you, is that you? Have you come to faith in Jesus Christ, slammed on the handbrake, 
shove down your foot to the, to the metal in terms of breaking the car, pulling back, put a big flag up outside of your window, no legalism, please, and then demanded that no one ask you anything. No one demand anything of you, no service, no, no help, no mission, no evangelism. Is that you, that you've come into this kingdom? Well, basically for you, you heard there was a crown on offer. Or have you come in and by the work of the Holy Spirit, have you decided that every gift that you have is dust going back to dust and you will give an account for how you utilize that dust, some of it gold-shaped dust, some of it home-shaped dust, some of it time, whatever it is. All of this dust is ours for a moment, then we die. Are you using it for the Lord Jesus Christ? First of all, it means faith in him. Second of all, it means willing service to him. But look at this. Your people offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments, in holiness. That as the priests, as the, as the minstrels, as the music service people, as, as they would come into that old covenant kingdom, into that old covenant temple, you know, they had to be washed. They had to be in set-apart clothing. They had to be in washed white and, and all sorts of colored items of clothing because when you come before God, you need to be holy. You need to be set apart from what is evil. You need to be cleansed. And that does not translate to, in the New Testament, that we all come with bleached white clothing. It doesn't mean that we all have to come in, in our Sunday best and, and, and three-piece suits. No hate if you do, just, just not the biblical requirement. What it means is that when we come into the kingdom of Jesus to offer ourselves to him for service, we need to do so with pure and holy hearts so that our service is arising from affection and true love. Jesus quotes the prophet Isaiah and warns against the, uh, the ignoring of this warning. He says, do not be those who come near to me with your words and affirm the truths and sing the songs and amen the sermons and, and even with your hands, do the deeds and carry out the tasks if your hearts are far from me. He warns against that and therefore urges, uh, and I urge you today in the same spirit, are your hearts in it, do you see as the most important, most rewarding, most satisfying, most glorious, most righteous purpose that you can utilize your life to do on this earth, fulfilling the purposes of the church, seeing souls won, seeing people rescued from hell and the grips of sin and serving Jesus Christ in and through his church? Do you see that? Do you believe that? And as you believe that, are you offering yourself in holiness? Some of us are attempting to serve or we're holding back from service because we have secret sins that we have not yet repented of. We have the addictions that are secret and behind the closet that no one else knows. Or we have ways that we act just outside of church. They click back in as soon as we walk out those doors and our, our language is worldly and our mindsets and our dealings with our friends and our business co-workers and everything like that. We, we act in sin and, and we wish that God would still use us in the same way and he won't. Uh, some of us want to, to do things in the church, but we have sin growing like weeds all over the place in our family, our marriage in tatters, our treatment of our own loved ones in the home is, is unbiblical. We need to be those who are offering ourselves to Jesus in holy garments. This means men in 2023, as we preached in 2022, this means that men in the household stand up and say, I, I have a covenant uh, representation of those in my care. Before God, my sin will leak downstream. Or before God, my righteousness, my purity of heart, my prayers and my spiritual attentiveness will pour downstream in blessings to my family. Men, do you realize that? 
that you are called to be the leaders of your home, where there is no family household strength in spirituality, the, the church will simply be a bunch of toothpicks and straws taped together like, a, like at a grade eight science fair. We need to be those whose roots are deep, whose beams are strong, like red cedars who, who send their roots down deep that we might be able to grow high and last long. <clears throat> This means that individuals who call themselves uh, Christians, who are, who are belonging to this church, you, you then see intentionally and, and by way of seeking to, to grow yourself, you say, how can I get involved in fellowship groups? That is a way that the elders here have, have so organized ministry so that learning the Bible, being encouraged by other Christians, praying together has just been put on so accessible to everybody that there's, there's six or seven of them around the place so that you can hopefully find one within 20 minutes or so. You can drive there. You can be taught as we dig deeper into the topics covered on Sunday. You can pray together, share your heart, bring your friends so that they can hear the gospel and be saved. Fellowship groups is, a, is an arm of the church's weaponry and warfare that we might put our sin to death and grow in holy garments, serving the Lord Jesus, offering ourselves to him. More importantly, evangelism and missions. As Psalm 110 verse 3 says, the father promises to the son that we will offer ourselves to him so that we will be in service to him. And one of the chief ways, the chief way that we are in service to our king is that we are doing what he came to do. That is to seek and save those that are lost. I want you to be more active in your friendships, more active in your families, more active in the streets going out with tracks, more active in whatever avenue you can find that you would be speaking the good news of God's grace to people who do not know our king and people who are still bound up in their sin, and people who despise the laws of God because they do not have new hearts, would you go out and be all the more active in our service, freely offering ourselves to God as we evangelize the city, community, world, families all around us? And so connected to that in 2023, we aim to be doing mission trips more than last year. Last year, by God's grace, we saw one mammoth uh, 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 trip done, and it was, it was, it was amazing, but we, we have a few that we want to go to around Asia, Pacific area. Two, hopefully three is our aim and by God's grace multiplying into the next few years. If you've never been on missions and you aim to be, some of you feel a sense of going to the mission field in the future and you haven't gone on a short-term trip yet, let's get active. Let's support. Some of you will not go. Most of us will not go this year, but would you pray for it? Would you give towards it? Would you support others to it so that we can go into the nations and preach the gospel and see lost people freely offer themselves to Jesus Christ by faith? means also that we have a, a sense of prayer and expectation. Prayer and expectation. We do this every term. We have our prayer meetings where we get together. And, and of late, we've been studying the revivals of God in the past where he, he, he erupts his church with a sense of the urgency of the gospel. And he sweeps souls into it that they might be saved and grows the church. And, and what I'm calling you to is, is a, not just the act of prayer. And, and come and join us at those prayer meetings. We gather as an army to call on God. But more so, would you, would you stoke within yourself and your private prayers and your family prayers in your church congregational prayers, would you stir within yourself a sense of expectation that it could be just around the corner, the next great move of God that I would argue Australia simply has never seen? 
A great revival that sweeps, that brings souls in. Not a revival defined by worshiper uh, services and people jumping on the ground and fire tunnels and lots of merchandise sold. Not that kind of revival. If that's your idea of revival, I want to throw that in the dustbin as well. I mean revival like the Bible speaks of revival. Like the book of Acts shows us revival. Standing up, preaching the word, pulpits on fire, pews soaring as people flow into them to hear the gospel, be saved, live holy lives, and continue the the process. That's what we want. That's what we pray for. Would you pray with us for that and join us at the prayer meetings to do so? Because while we seek to be, to be faithful in the little and we seek to do what we can by, as a local church to the glory of God, we want to be a part of what he is doing globally, nationally, because we wish to see many, many more beyond ourselves. We don't just want to see this place filled and we'll rack that up as a win. We don't just want to see ourselves with, a, with a, a slightly bigger church than the last one we were at or a slightly more exciting church than the one I've been at before or I just don't want to be somewhere I can come in and hide. No, friends, I can't remember who it was. One of the great missionaries of the past says that the, great, the true sense of failure for a Christian and the church is not, is not failing at everything. It's succeeding at things that don't eternally matter. Building projects, online uh, podcasts that, that seem impressive and argumentation and, and how things look and how things sound, all of it will perish. The question will be this, how many people will God have used Hope Reformed Baptist Church and our humble services with our hands, how many souls will be saved from an eternal hell and given to Jesus as a sacrificial offering of praise through our work and our labor? That should be the one question that ultimately matters to us. For others of us, we're attending and we're not yet active and we have gifts in terms of music and tech and cooking and children's ministry or production and media uh, engaging the culture with the gospel. I, I don't know, I, I, uh, but, but, but we have plenty of ways that more people can get involved and the invitation is open so that we can continue to up the ante on our amount of service so that Jesus can be glorified. And I want to I invite you, come and find a way to be involved. Others of you, it doesn't, it doesn't always have to be so central to a Sunday gathering and, and the events being put on here, but, but can you not reach your neighbors more? Can you not hold an evangelistic Bible study in your community? Can you not do something in your local school or, or do some way to love the neighbors around you? Every single one of us are able to read Psalm 110 verse 3. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. Every single one of us, this is the good news, is able to read that and say, there is room for me, even me, no matter how young in the faith I am, young I am, old I am, weak I am, there is something for me to do in the building of Christ's eternal kingdom. And it also means that every single one of us, however active we are, can read that and say, there is room to grow. There is room to improve for my king is worthy of it. And look at verse 4. <clears throat> look at verse 4. This, this I know, I know I'm at odds with the apostles here, but this is my favorite verse in the psalm. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that. I don't know if I'll get, uh, you know, the, the cane in, on my knuckles on my way into heaven for saying this, but verse 4 is my favorite verse here of Psalm 110. Read it with me. You follow in your Bible. The Lord has sworn. Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind. And here's what he swears. You, talking to Jesus, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Amen, somebody. 
I heard some amens with a question mark on there. What am I amening? What does this mean? How do you really pronounce that? I don't know. I just say mel and then cough a little and it sort of comes out. Mel deck. Right? Okay. And, and here's what verse 4 means. Just for all of us that, that read that and, and didn't have the time to look up commentaries in the last week or the last minute. What does that mean? This is a theme and an all-important truth that goes hand in hand with Christ as king above all authority. He is also priest who sacrifices to wash away all sin. God has sworn something. We we should not take this lightly. It's God himself who frequently in Scripture says, don't be rash with your swearing. Don't be rash with your oaths. Don't just promise any old thing. Just let your yes be yes and your no's be no's. And you know what? Most of the time God does that. But other times he shows us by example that there are some things so important, so dire, so so necessary and vital and fundamental to the very fabric of, of, of the world and the universe and God's own existence that he will enter into an oath and a covenant. And what is all the more interesting is that God here is actually not promising to David anything. He's promising to himself something. This is the Lord Yahweh speaking to his son Jesus. And just in case there was any question about this this morning, Jesus is divine. He is the eternal second person of the triune Godhead. He is God. So here is the first person of the Godhead promising something to the second person of the Godhead. I mean, this sounds like it's pretty important. He really has to mean this. And then it's so obscure. What does he mean? A priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And here's what he means. There's a story back in, in Genesis when Abraham, the great, the great father of the Jews, he, he wins this war and then he bumps into this guy who is actually Jesus before Jesus was Jesus. All right? He, he's God the Son looking like, picturing himself like, manifesting like a king and a general and a priest. And he's Abraham. He, he bumps into this guy, and it's only a few verses long, this entire interaction. But we hear that this guy, Melchizedek, he is, he is the king of righteousness. Cool name. He is the king of peace. It's a sweet name. And he's a high priest to God most high. Friends, these are all languages that are then applied to Jesus Christ later on in the Bible. But here we have this divine moment where God is meeting Abraham and he meets God as a king and as a priest. And then he disappears and doesn't appear again until Psalm 110. And then he disappears again and is never referenced until Hebrews chapter 5. Why is this? Why is this pastor here this morning trying to say that this is such an essential, substantial, vital promise that God would make about such an obscure character? It's showing this. Before there was ever a human lineages of priests to make sacrifices, God first had a divine priest that was going to offer a sacrifice. Before there was ever the Old Testament temple worship, there was always a more ultimate way that God himself would bring us to himself. So that then in the, in the New Testament, in Psalm 110, and then in the New Testament, when we're told that Jesus is a high priest, as we just sung, he is a high priest before the throne of God above. I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest who ever lives to plead for me. 
Okay? When it's saying that about Jesus, what it's saying is he's not one of those human priests in the line. He's not the best one at the end of the line. He's not even in their line. He's in Melchizedek's line. And you know what that means? He's priest who's also king. He's priest over all righteousness. He's king over all peace. He is the priest that actually and truly does what no priest could do ever before, which is truly bring God's presence to us and truly bring us through his sacrifices to God. In other words... Application here. When God promises to his son Jesus, after he died, after he rose, and he comes up to the throne, when the father turns to the son and says, you, I swear, I'll never change my mind. You are a priest forever in the order of the divine priests that mediate God to man. What he is saying is this. You are an effective, efficient, eternal, everlasting, powerful priest Everyone that you made a sacrifice for in your death, I will honor the merits of that sacrifice. Everybody who you pray for, I will bring to salvation. Everybody that you are a priest over, I promised and I'll never change my mind. Isn't it the case that we usually make promises and oaths in case we change my mind? My love, I promise to be with you in sickness and in health, in good and in bad, and whatever the other ones are. I should know. I, I probably should know. But, you know, whatever the other promises are, Why do we make a promise that day? Because there'll come a day when you don't feel like fulfilling it. You make an oath because you usually change your mind. Business partners, covenanting kings, politicians, they they make an oath because there'll come a day when they change their mind. And the oath will hold them through the change of mind. And here's what God is saying is, I'm not making an oath because I'm fickle. I'm not making an oath for security. I'm making an oath to show you how deep this runs in my heart. I'm making an oath, and I'll never change my mind. There's never going to be a day that I grind against this oath, always and forever. It is the pleasure of the very heart of God that he says, everybody that Jesus represented in his death, everybody that comes to God through Jesus, everybody who has faith in Jesus, everybody who Jesus is a priest for, the Father will honor, will love, will adopt, will bring in with full pleasure, no matter how dark your sins are, no matter how dark your past is, Jesus is the effective priest who brings you to God. That's what Psalm 110 verse 4 means. And so in all this language about the great things God is achieving, the great things the church should drive on to do in and through all of our suffering and our trials, as we talk about the ministry of the local church, Psalm 110 verse 4 becomes so central. We cannot aim big and lose sight of the propitiatory sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We cannot preach big kingdom and forget to tell people that they're sinners and Jesus' death has made them right if they have faith. We cannot ignore the the, the tree for the sake of the forest. Friends, the, 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 the sacrifice of Jesus is the heart of the gospel and we must therefore believe it. If you do not believe that, don't try and enter a kingdom before you come to the cross. Give your sin to Jesus. The Christianity is not about a list of ethics. It's not about a lifestyle. It is first and foremost good news that in the cross of Jesus, you can be forgiven. That is primary. So come to the cross, give him your sin, and then be put to work. Have faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. That is the most important thing. And then, friends, as a church, that becomes our main task, preaching teaching, disseminating, spreading the news of this primary message that Jesus Christ has died for sinners and saves all those who have faith in 
him. Amen? Look at the rest of the psalm. Psalm 110 verse 5, this is the the promise of the end of the kingdom, or the, the purpose of the kingdom, the things that are achieved through the timeline of this kingdom. The Lord, this is now promised to us. This is the Father saying to the kingdom people, the Lord, Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, he who has all authority in heaven and on earth, he is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. That is, those who oppose his purposes, he will depose. He will execute judgments among the nations. That is, that his righteousness and kingdom will spread to every land and every nation and every tribal group and every language will hear the message and give glory to God through Jesus Christ eventually. He will fill them with corpses. That is, that his enemies will go down or his enemies will kneel and confess that he is Lord. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. There's no uh, position or official too high that he will not take sovereignty over them. He will shatter even the heads. And he will drink from the brook, by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. A, A picture of a warrior taking a calm drink by the way, because he is confident in his own victory. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. This is the promise that God made to Jesus, that he will, through his death and his resurrection, where he took our sin, paid our penalty, appeased God's wrath, then rose back to eternal life, and that eternal life he gives to those who have faith in him, his kingdom people. These are the promises that the Father made to the Son. Because of all of that, Jesus will see that all of God's chosen ones, his bride, will be brought to him. They will be saved. This is his promise, that all those who come to him, every single one of us who place our faith in him, will then receive a portion of the Spirit to be able to work and labor for his purposes, to his glory, because he is the gracious God, and all of our works are merely his work in us. And thirdly, that in his effective death that saves the chosen ones, And in the fact that the people will come to him and serve him, he will therefore have a global, worldwide, spiritual kingdom that infuses and diffuses into every part of life. And friends, the task of the Christian is to see how your life, our local church, fits like a puzzle piece into that glorious grand picture. So, have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ? Have you been saved from your sins and experienced the joy of salvation. Secondly, have you gotten active and you're belonging to a church and you're serving Jesus in a church? And then thirdly, are you optimistic about the outcome? Can you know that you are following in behind the Lord, the glorious, victorious Jesus Christ? Bring on 2023 to the glory of God. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, that you were willing to obey your Father Before you had ever taken on a body, you submitted to his will joyfully. It was also your will and you came, having been sent from the Father, you came as a baby to be born and then live a perfect life in our place and then go around teaching and preaching this good news of what God had given you to preach. And then, Lord God, Jesus Christ, our Savior, you went to the cross You took our sins. You were treated as if you had lived our lives so that we could be treated as if we were true sons like you are. Father God, we thank you that you sent him. We thank you that you then honored his sacrifice. You were so gracious as to treat him in our place. And you were gracious and powerful and faithful in your promises to raise him from the grave so that we can have confidence that only in him is salvation. And in him is all the salvation we will ever need. 
Thank you, Father God, that you, you accepted him back into the throne room of heaven and you exalted him and glorified him in his rule and reign and that you gave to him the Holy Spirit that he could then give to us. Father God, we thank you for the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would be in our midst this morning, convicting us of the small sins we need to remove from our lives because there are no small sins, of the secret patterns we need to put to death so that we can be more effective. Holy Spirit, would you be here now and, and convict and cut to the heart of those who are still in their sin, are still under their sin, are still enemies of Jesus Christ? Would you bring them to the foot, foot of his throne? Would you make them bend their knee and believe in salvation of the cross and be saved? And Holy Spirit, would you put us to work, every last one of us, so that we can, can have a glorious and joy-filled judgment day of receiving rewards and giving honor to you with no regret, Father God, I pray that you would use your spirit in our midst to, to exhort us and to send us out from here all the more obedient. That 2023, Lord God, would not be a, a year that makes our name great. We do not pray that. We do not want 2023 to be a year that will give glory to ourselves. We do not pray that. We do not pray that this next year becomes something of a, of a building of individual or corporate empires for ourselves. No, God, we are not interested in our individual, family, monetary, or church empires, but only the kingdom of your son. We pray that whatever happens to us, however much we have forgotten, that you would use us to give glory to Jesus, as Charles Spurgeon prayed. Let me be a rose trampled in the path as long as it is the king that is walking over us and receiving the sweet fragrance. Father God, use us, we pray. Make us your willing people, we pray. Save souls through us, we pray. And everybody said in the name of Jesus, amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.